and welcome to Ginwag with me, Mike Laverick. Um, I'm feeling a little bit, uh, how to describe it, not firing in all cylinders today. Uh, the weekend was my stag do, uh, if that doesn't translate, a uh, bachelor party if you're from the US. So I was up at uh, Sunday morning about 5am when my, my best friend uh, from back home said, I'm off to bed and I was the stag was the last man standing which I think given my advanced years is a bit of an achievement so um, apologies if I'm not my uh, usual bright and chirpy self but I thought, I thought I sound I don't know to myself a bit bright and chirpy uh, it's actually 8a in the morning but it's um, the reason I'm doing this so early is that my uh, my cohort on the chinwag is actually on the other side of the planet to me so it's actually his late at night I imagine so um Without further ado, let me introduce Alistair Cook, uh, who writes our letters from New Zealand. Is it Alistair Cook who used to do the uh, letters from America? I forget his name now. It, it was indeed, and uh, every year when I started school all through primary school, it was always a, a comment point for every teacher. Yeah, yeah. Now I get to say that rumours of my death are much exaggerated. <laughs> so um, it, it is New Zealand. What, what time is it right now? It is. So uh, I'm coming to you from the future. Uh, it's nine o'clock at night on Monday, uh, and it's it's very early in the morning on Monday for you. Yeah. Well, actually, what I should have done is we should have. Well, it would have been impossible for you, but we should have done this this at like twelve noon, and you would have been in one day, and I would have been in another day, and like I would just be saying like, well, what's Tuesday like? Is it was it any different than Monday? You know, pretty much the same as as, as it was about five minutes ago when it was still Monday. <laughs> Whereabouts in, uh, in New Zealand are you? So I, I live in rural New Zealand. I'm uh, in a, a little village called Amokaroa, which is a few thousand people, about 3,000 people on a little peninsula stuck into a harbour. I'm about 200 kilometres out of Auckland, which is New Zealand's largest city, and I live uh, on the east coast, so sticking out towards the, uh, happily protected by an island, but towards the Pacific. So if a big tsunami comes rolling in from the Pacific, we're one of the places that, get, that is uh, on the risk of being wiped out. All right, God. So tell me, um, I mean, not that we plan to talk about this, but parts of, of New Zealand and sort of Asia-Pac are still very rural and not very densely populated. How do you get along with your internet access if you're out in the sticks? Or is it everywhere is the sticks, so you're not out in them, you're just, you're just there? Well, the, the government in New Zealand and, and similarly, it's the same things happening in Australia, has, has recognised the need for, for more high-speed uh, internet access. But uh, I, I haven't even seen where I live on the plan. So I have three different internet connections. I have two ADSL one connections coming into the house uh, and those are sort of consumer grade. One of them I need because the cell coverage is so bad. I've got a femto cell in the house to actually be able to receive phone calls. Uh, and then I've got a WiMAX connection. I've got a wireless, licensed wireless sitting on my roof connecting back into an access point and that's my business grade connection. Uh, whenever I need a, a more expensive but higher level of service, that's the uh, the internet connection I use. Is that what you're using now to speak to me then? No, this is one of the cheap ADSL links, Mike. I've uh, on my long list of tasks is to to bring back up that WiMAX connection and and make it a branch office of my uh, co-load lab. So the reason that I was um, interested in asking this question is that both me and Carmel are thinking of moving to a more rural location in the UK. But I was saying to her just the other day, I said we've forgotten how utterly dependent we are on it because we both work from home. So there isn't like an eight hour period where we're at work and there's plentiful, plentiful internet access that one can shuffle into, you know, uh, we're always going to be, uh, to some degree off, off grid. 
Um, but it's funny that you mentioned the, the bundled ADSL because um, I noticed in some of the rural locations that I've been looking at that they do do uh, ADSL bundling, bundling. And to be honest with you, because I've never lived in a rural location, it never had even occurred to me that would one, one would do that because I manage on a single you know, uh, local loop back to the exchange from my ADSL. The only thing that bugs me about it is the upstream stinks and that's crap for uploading video but every every week we get uh, the cable company, local cable companies advertising, you know, come and join us and I'm like, yeah, but if you stick in my postcode, you're not in my stream. Stop sending me adverts <laughs> for things I can't have. It's it's just like rubbing it in, you know. So, but I, I guess yeah, and it's I, the same on all the TV ads as well, of course. Yeah, but I, one thing I couldn't get out of BT on this little web page was what they did with the upstream. Um, but I guess the upstream is just equally just the same rate as bad, but doubled because you've got two ADSL lines. I, I don't know how it works. So, yeah, mine are from two different ADSL providers. So one is a very low cost connection uh, because I have teenage children. And uh, also a wife who likes to see uh, recent TV. We need uh, we need high speed connections for those things, and or at least we need high volume connections for those things. Uh, and then I have another service which is from my telco uh, in order to cover the cell phone, and that's the only thing it gets used for at the moment is to give me uh, more than half a bar of cell signal at home. Well, I mean to wrap wrap up this uh, kind of off piece discussion that we didn't really plan on having. Um, maybe that's the thing of the future that everybody will be carrying their four G link around. And everybody will have their own personal allocation of bandwidth that we won't be scrapping over it on contention, you know, 50 to 1 or 25 to 1 or whatever it is with your your neighbours. But I think even in the UK, we're well off any genuine 4G network that's that's remotely accessible, unless you're in and London or Manchester. That's the thing is, is getting into the rural areas, you, the 4G doesn't actually cut it because of the uh, the high frequencies they use don't travel so far. And so you've got to get some really low frequency. Um, we're, we're phasing out analog TV here to get 700 megahertz available for long-range 4G connections, and that's still going to be a year or so away. Yeah, I think maybe we're a bit long further along that process. Um, we're getting to the point where the analog is being turned off in certain regions, so people have to get a digital TV or a, a, a digibox. Mm. And the government floated off the 4G spectrum but they made a fraction of the money on it compared to 3G because you're selling the spectrum at like the worst point in the economic cycle. So like I think the, the 3G spectrum raised three or four times the revenue for the government compared to 4G, even though 4G offers this you know stellar increase in bandwidth and experience. The, the telcos weren't interested in spending that much money on it. But anyway, <laughs> well, this is what happens on a chinwag. <laughs> We should find our track to get back on. <laughs> yes. So um, let's get back on the track. One of the things that uh, Alistair is famous for, and if he's not famous for, should be famous for, is something called Autolab. Now, I'm, I'm increasingly more familiar with Autolab because I've, I've got quite into home labs again. Even though I don't have one, uh, one of the things I'm keen on is trying to persuade people or get people into a home lab and using our, our gear. Um, and I'm interested in the easiest way of doing that, the cheapest way of doing that with the best experience that your limited resources can buy and different ways of doing it. So, you know, if you don't fancy one way, you've got another. But um, for the benefit of the uninitiated, what is Autolab? So the, 
aim with the auto lab was to use a PC you already have. I did some, like you, I've, I've looked around at all kinds of labs and had all kinds. And the one that I found was the most applicable one is to use VMware Workstation or VMware Fusion and use your laptop. Um, yep, have a laptop that's got a reasonably recent CPU and got quite a lot of RAM in it. And then you use the Autolab kit. Uh, the aim of the Autolab kit is to take out all of the, the work that's not vSphere out of building the lab and, in fact, allow you to automate the stuff that is about vSphere. So it's a collection of empty virtual machines. There are two that are, that are populated that have some files on them that include all of the automation. Uh, the aim is that you bring along your licensed software and you download this free kit of virtual machines. And, and then we automate all of the builds. So there's a uh, automation of the build of a, a domain controller virtual machine that also provides SQL and provides a full Pixie boot environment, followed by automation of the build of a vCenter virtual machine. Now, at this stage, still using the Windows install because uh, typically it's a, a smaller thing to download. Uh, we can automate all of the Windows install, and if you choose to install the version of vCenter that you want, including Update Manager and the vSphere client and PowerShell and all of those. Uh, so that's the first two virtual machines built. Uh, when I tried to do this by hand, it took me about two days to get those two virtual machines built. To build them in the lab, it's in the auto lab, uh, you, you literally power on the two virtual machines and walk away for an hour from each virtual machine. Uh, following that, you use two more virtual machines, which are the two ESX servers, because, of course, we need two servers to do HA and DRS. Uh, and they pixie boot from the uh, domain controller, and you can choose to manually install, or you can accept the scripted install of, of ESX, uh, different menu options for each version of ESX that you've chosen to include, and, and for each of the two servers. And then to uh, finish things off, there's a PowerShell script that does the full configuration of the ESX servers, including configuring them to access the iSCSI and NFS storage that's on one of the pre-populated virtual machines, which is the NAS VM. Uh, so at the end of all of this automation and scripting, you have a two-host HAN DRS cluster with the capability of running nested VMs on them. You have uh, six shared storage data stores, and uh, I've even automated the install of operating systems inside the, the nested virtual machines. Uh, that kind of level of, of uh, vSphere cluster with HA and DRS is extremely useful for testing demos, and particularly the thing that it was originally created for was uh, learning about vSphere as an education environment. So, I mean, I know, I, I know the kind of minimum specs is something like uh, 8 gig of RAM, uh, iCore 7 CPU or something like that is sort of recommended and sort of like 120 gig worth of disk space to get the whole the whole mm. thing going but that's that's minimum what's your what's your ideal so, I mean I know memory we would always <laughs> love as much memory as possible what what do you run yeah, it on? You've, you've never got enough so what I developed that original core lab that I've described on is now a at Easter it'll be four years old uh, Core 2 Duo, which I upgraded to 8 gigs of RAM and, and put a solid-state disk in. Now, the solid-state disk is uh, one of the best upgrades you can have because you're running so many VMs. A single laptop disk is just going to get saturated and, and you're going to be waiting forever. Mm. But as you say, more memory is good, more solid-state disk. The Autolab that I described was the original release with just vSphere in it, and it would fit inside that 120 gigs. Uh, with help from my friends and my own interest as well. The Autolab now encompasses a full view implementation as well as a vCloud director of 1.5 and we're just working on 5.1 at the moment, uh, layered on top of that. Mm. 
if you configure all of those things and run them, they'll chew through 16 gigs of RAM. And the development machine that I use has 32 gigs and a quad-core i7 and a 240 gig SSD. And that's that's not an, an outrageous machine the way it was two years ago. Uh, I've seen recently motherboards with eight DIMM slots that you can put eight gig DIMMs in, so you could have a, a single X, uh, i7 with, with 64 gigs of RAM in it, and it's not outrageously expensive. Mm. Uh, it's, it's usually the, the tough decision is how much SSD to buy. Yeah, I mean, I think the SSD is, I mean, memory is always nice, but the, the especially with the nested stuff, once you've got those layers of I.O., it's a bit like, if you want an analogy for it, having a ILO session open up in an RDP, once you've got all those layers in place, you can start to feel, mm, this isn't responsive. If you take the spindle out of the equation, you know, suddenly the experience... I remember when, you know, Simon Gallagher did his TARDIS thing, which I guess was one of those early projects of, like, you know, how much can we stack... How much can we stack up on top of the turtles... The SSD component for him, I think, made a massive difference that it made it much more usable. And he was doing, I don't know how many ESX hosts, I think he had like 20 or 30 ESX hosts, all with a tiny amount of memory just trying to see how much he could get, just get up and running out of that one box. But we were saying offline about the Auto Lab is whenever you have one of these like pet projects, which suddenly makes you, uh, you know, no longer visible to your friends and family because it, it just, you get sucked <laughs> into the vortex of it. There's always one or two things which seem to be impasses that are really frustrating, and and the day that you resolve them is the day you run out of the the man cave going, yes, it lives. Uh, to which the rest of the family are like, uh, what's wrong with dad? Uh, you know, is he is he losing his marbles? So, but what were the biggest one or two challenges? The ones that seem to be so intractable, and maybe there was one that was like, well, if I can't overcome this problem, then this thing isn't worthwhile or would be heavily diminished or was there nothing really like that? There are a couple of things that were um, really challenging for me. I mean, one of the fundamental things is the entire package that I put up for, for download uh, is all software that, that has no restrictions on redistribution. Mm. And that was challenging to find the right components, find things that I could actually use and I could automate that also didn't have any so much as a registration to download. Mm. Uh, and had had those kinds of license agreements, but the thing that's that's led to the the absence of hair that you can see on the top of my head is actually the inconsistency in installers and um, even product functions. Mm. So it's things like the fact that if you put in the unattended install of Windows two thousand and eight, if you put optional components in the build, then the unattended file becomes build version specific so you can't use the same unattend file for 2008R2 as you do for 2008R2 with SP1 media. Yeah. That kind of thing just drives you up the wall and it's, it's, it's Microsoft have done it but then VMware do, do, does things like releasing uh, 5.0 update 1 so the initial release of, of, uh, of uh, Autolab was last year when 5.0 was current and I tested with 5.0 and then they released 5.0 update 1 which has a completely different set of files that are required to pixie boot it. So you've got to have a different config file for that. Mm. And then they do do fun things like distributing major pieces of software with very fragile automation around the unattended installs. So it's MSI installer packages wrapped up inside other MSI installer packages where you've got to pass switches on inside. And depending upon exactly how you tell it to be silent, it may or may not work. The most frustrating thing is where you, you 
pass all the parameters to the installer, but don't tell it to be silent. So it fills in the defaults for you. It works perfectly. Mm. And then you pass the just the be quiet while you're doing it switch. And it's and broken. It abysmal. I must admit, a couple of, about a year ago or more, when I was working on this Hotel California thing, this book that never got written, I set up a blog for the character, Luke Maverick, and I was putting a couple of blog posts out just to seed it there. And um, what I was working on was unattended installs of things like Virtual Center, because I was using the UDA to do the yeah. installs. And it kind of came out of the story that Luke, my fictitious character, had done enough installs of vSphere that he never wanted to do another manual install ever again, and therefore wanted to automate it. And, you know, some of those switches on MSIs, they are so cryptic. And, of course, when you're trying to test it, you type it in and you think it's going to work. No, it's bathed up. But, you know, can you trust whether it's made any changes or not? No, so you're going to have to revert your snapshot, get yourself all in a row again, have another go. And it's sometimes like brute force of just oh, trying yeah. and trying and trying to eventually get a win out of it. I wonder whether the reason this happens, and I, I would say this about our stuff as well, is how many enterprise vendors think that the product that they're going to have a uh, customer install will be installed a thousand times or a million times by the customer. Most enterprise mm -hmm. software gets installed two or three times, ten times in a business. I mean, it's not application installers that go to a PC. Because if you, if you imagine if you had a PC, I mean, maybe we don't do this anymore, but if you had an MSI of a 10 meg application that all your end users want you to use and you couldn't deploy it through Active Directory, then you'd, you'd probably walk away from that application in disgust because it would have such an appalling deployment process. But enterprise software probably it has even less effort put into its automation because it's assumed that the number of people are going to do that, unless you're a service provider or something like that, is is so minimal, therefore they make no effort about it. But yeah, I mean, I think you're right, and I think you know you can lay the door of VMware for this. You've got different products like View. I wonder whether the installer engine, the way that product gets installed, is different from Virtual Center, which is still based on a Windows environment, but it's an entirely different team of people who, who work on it. Does anybody say in the, in the company that all of these things, the ducks in the row, must line up? Or are they more or less free to do whatever they want? As long as the product is installed and the, the customer is happy, do we really worry about the standardization? I mean, I'm, I can't speak for it. I don't, I've never even asked that question, but it's perhaps an interesting I one. I believe it's been discussed recently. I can't remember which podcast I was listening to because I listened to quite a few. Yeah. Uh, it was discussed recently that this was an issue that VMware were addressing was consistency of installers. Oh, okay. There's a lot of VMware installers that, for instance, install Apache, but not all of them expose the, the notification settings that you'll see when you install Site Recovery Manager, and I can't remember what the other one was. Yeah, yeah. The whole look and feel hasn't been consistent. I can guess you can make an argument the opposite side. Is some of the virtual appliances, the early ones, were on different flavors of Linux. I think pretty much the standardization on SUSE is almost complete. But and oh, I some, think that's a really good thing. Yeah, and... Uh, but one thing I've noticed is some of the login pages, you have your kind of standard, uh, what port number is it, 5480, that most of the mm. configuration pages on. Some of them are pretty standard and some of them are like, well, this is a, a different front end. And I guess you could argue if the appliance has significantly different configuration requirements, that could then force the UI to be different because it has to guide the user through. 
But if you're using a lot of these different appliances and you come into one that's a bit different, you do sort of sit back in your chair and go, all right, okay, uh, let me work out where I am with this thing. Um, rather than it just being another tab or another couple of options, it, it often mm. looks quite different. But I was going to say about the Autolab, I, I, I won't make any claims for fame here, but when I was doing the UDA a few years ago, I presented it to the London User Group and just showed a, an automated install and people said oh that's good and said uh, well maybe the future is, is that we take the the uda and we make it into a real deployment tool not just putting esx on the box but building an entire vSphere environment to which people in the room kind of went yeah mike scoff <laughs> um you know i was doing the vision thing but i think actually that's what you've done with autolab you, you've taken I, that process yeah. and you've made it a completely automated process. So my question before we move on is, have you ever thought about the Autolab being re-engineered to actually being a rapid develop, uh, deployment tool for vSphere that people who want to put their software on in anger in a greenfield location could use? Has, has that ever crossed your mind at all? Uh, I didn't build the uh, the scripts with that that objective, mm. uh, but I, f I feel like there's there's the beginnings of something that a smart person could pick up and run with. And so uh, last year I wrote a series of blog posts on the professional VMware site that went through here. Here is how I've done each piece of the automation. Feel free to reuse it wherever is appropriate in your environment. Mm. Um, yeah, that that kind of share it out. One of the difficulties for me is, is my day job doesn't involve actually going out and building environments uh, at real customers, and so the kind of imperative to build something for that isn't there. Mm. Uh, so you know, you 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 build what you need to do your job. Um, yeah, that you get, gets your interest. I guess what I was thinking about was, you know. Um, when organizations such as VMware and other ISVs talk about their products, alongside the ROI and the PCO and all that other hogwash, um, they'll talk about, you can get our product spun up within a week, within 48 hours, within three months, within half a century. Um, the rapid deployment and the ability to spin it up quickly is often regarded as a good thing because it means the number of bodies, PSO, people on site to do this thing is kept to an absolute minimum. In other words, you're not going to buy into this product and then find that you've had to sign up for six months' worth of consultancy, which is actually worth more than the actual product you've bought. And I'm noticing a lot of the the other vendors who are snapping at VMware's heels, uh, people like the OpenStack groups, they have a lot of very interesting videos that go, oh, well, this is how we deploy our cloud, and it's up in 10 minutes. And I'm like, whoa, we, we need to do something about that. Because if you think about the manual process of manually installing ESX, it's, it's pretty easy. But if you've got hundreds to do, you want to do that in bulk. Yeah, there is auto-deploying, but maybe auto-lab could be the basis of that. But then what time does it take to create virtual center and all the metadata in virtual center? You know, if you've ever had to rebuild virtual center because it's poached or because you're setting up for a lab and, uh, or for a course and nobody's done the setup, and therefore the, you haven't got any scripts to do it, and it, you work out, well, I could do this manually or I could write a script. Well, by the time I've written the script and debugged it, I could be... And debugged it. I, you know, it could be in deeper. I might as well just go manual and just get started, you know, and, and plan for that. So it's just a thought. Um, but, yeah, I, I guess it is difficult. I think the big thing is, is production environments to install to, unless they're absolutely greenfield. Everybody wants it their way, in my own little way, like 
in my company. Whereas with a home lab, I think a lot of people like, yeah, just get it on the box, and if I need to change it, I will just you know change the switch configuration to be what I want to. That's different when you come to production, where you might want more control over the way it's put on the environment. But yeah, there's there's a whole lot more constraints and and requirements involved in a production deployment. There's a lot of already existing infrastructure where well, no. the deploy is entirely self-contained and yeah, so yeah. the scripts only have to work on that environment, they don't have to work across three different generations of HP blades mm. and, and some Dell pizza boxes at the same time well there's, so a, that's, there, that's a, much- there's a counter argument if you could say it, you could say it is given the complexity of trying to shoehorn the product into an existing environment which might take n number of days if you could say to the customer, look, if you give us a greenfield environment, we can have this stood up in 20 minutes, which one would like the customer pick? Mm. You know, yeah. so, I mean, it's a bit like, not to advertise them, the V-block kind of mentality. You could go out and source all the parts individually, yeah, or you could have it just arrived on a pallet and have done with it. And it, it might not be exactly what you need, and it might not be in the kind of rack enclosure that you normally have, but if that can be delivered and provided and done in 30 days sooner than the other process, maybe people go, mm, well, you know, yeah, it's inflexible, but look. Uh, but it's, it's, it's an appliance that runs enough VMs for us, and, and that's what we needed to build. Is yeah, and, to uh, on. and there's another 50, 100,000 people who've done it exactly the same way. So it's like, uh, because it's standardised, then the support becomes mm. easier. If there is a problem... It's not like our own junk that we've kind of cobbled together. Cobbled it's this standardised thing. Anyway, yeah. we want to move off this. Off this, I'm really into this auto lab home lab thing, which is kind of weird. I don't know why, but I just it's something. I mean, I might go back to a home lab. I don't know what to do with the colo at the moment, so I need to do the research and the the due diligence, as we say, uh, on whether I should stick with where I am rather than just saying I'm going to leave or stay as I am. But the other thing that uh, Alistair is is uh, heavily involved in is the the brown bags, and it's uh, the interesting thing about this is that it's a jumping point to some of our other questions that we've got or discussion points. But um, for the for the people who've been living under a stone. Um, and who you know are disconnected from the internet and never watch any TV. What what is the brown bag? Because I'm sure people must have heard of this, but maybe there are people out there that have not not heard about this wonderful resource to the community. Well, I uh, I'm trying to re- remember what TV channels we're on um, because <laughs> I think we've definitely covered every other media. Uh, the V Brown Bag is uh, started out as a podcast that a, um, a Rackspace uh, engineer who was their, their lead on VMware started. Cody Bunch started the professional VMware Brown Bag podcast a while ago, and it's really a podcast that that goes out helping people to become to transition into certification or to, to get to the certifications. Uh, it's you know, to achieve VMware certifications, you've got to do quite a bit of work yourself. You've got to spend some time, and uh, it can be hard to get motivated. And that was Cody's original objective with the podcast was to help him stay motivated to do uh, VMware certifications. Mm. So there's a US-based podcast. This is the the original podcast. Uh, Cody's role has changed, and he's he's not has as much time to uh, dedicate it. He's now uh, fully OpenStack, so he's doing professional OpenStack now. But the V Brown Bag has a life of its own. It's run uh, Damien Carlson and Josh Atwell, uh, the, the two sort of focuses for the US edition. Uh, I run the APAC edition. 
then we've got um, Greg Robertson is running the Amir edition. Kyle Murley has uh, this year started the Spanish, so we're multilingual. <laughs> You've gone pan-global. <laughs> Dude, we're, we're going Chinese too. We're going after <laughs> the biggest market of them all. Uh, this week will be the very first Chinese language V brown bag, and I have wow. no idea how to say V brown bag in Chinese. <laughs> Actually, it probably uh, so doesn't translate. It probably is like a, a well, load of completely not load of Mandarin, and then in the middle of it, V brown bag, and then a little bit more Mandarin. You know, so I imagine so. I, I imagine there is a, a similar concept, but we we want to stick with the same brand and the, the same idea. Hmm. Now, the other th- thing that we're known for, apart from the, the podcast itself, is um, sort of hooking up with lots of social media and making other stuff happen. And one of the things that we did uh, at both VM Awards last year was to run the community track. Uh, this was a sort of under-the-radar, very unofficial, where uh, Alex Meyer actually reached out to us when there was lots of grumbling going on around people whose sessions didn't get accepted. <laughs> and uh, Cody, Cody is an amazing guy. He's, he's, um, I don't think he'll mind if I say he is completely crazy. Uh, and he was going to run a, an unconference the same week at the Rackspace offices or some rented location where people whose session didn't get accepted could, could go and present their material because there's so much good content being produced out of the community. Uh, social media team at VMware, of course, being smart people, said, come and present your content on our stage, because they've always had a stage there. So that they handed the control of the stage over to the brown bag team, which <laughs> I don't know that they knew what they were getting in for. <laughs> oh, you were getting in for as well. Well, yes, and then we handed it over to you, the, the community. So we had, in San Francisco, we had about, what do we have? seven hours of um, 15 minute segments so we would have had 28 people come and present on just the, the the genesis of some topic and this was any person from the community could submit a session and we only rejected the ones that were clearly a vendor pitch mm. um, and, and then we had about the same amount of time of longer sessions of, of people that, that if you follow the community you know so um, people who, who are active in the community we would allow a longer session for and, uh, and present some content and then the really cool other thing that that turned up was the not supported sessions and I'm just looking up above my desk where I've got the not supported poster. Uh, not supported was was run uh, by one of the game guys from who used to be VMware Labs whose name escapes me and I'm really embarrassed about that right it's now. It's not William Lamb um, is it? It's not William Lamb is it? No, William was one of the presenters. Because um, he does a lot of unsupported stuff on, on virtual ghetto doesn't he? Oh yeah, yeah. So there's, the, and that, that kind of material was exactly what Not Supported was about. It was about VMware's engineers of, of one sort or another who do stuff that, that we all want to know about, but which is totally not supported. And, mm. and that's what the Not Supported sessions were about. So, yeah, William came and told us how to use vCloud 1.5 to deliver nested ESX servers. And we had uh, in must have been in Barcelona because we, we got asked to go to Barcelona and do it again because it was so popular and so uh, a few of us got to go to Barcelona as well as to San Francisco and uh, I think it was there that I had Duncan come in and, and talk about hacking SRAs to do things that Site Recovery Manager is never supposed to do mm-hmm. uh, and so yeah, we had all of these really well-known, well-connected people talking about things that can't be done like um, Andre Lipovici came in and, and he showed a demo of you brokering a native connection to an Ubuntu desktop 
oh, right. which is completely not supported. He actually showed it to me 15 minutes before he was due to go on. I said to him, you've got to show that. Please, please show that. He had to run away and get permission from his management to show it publicly. That's, I mean, I've, as an instructor, I've often felt quite frustrated about the term unsupported because... You know when you're doing the research before a training course and you read something that says, this is unsupported. What that triggers in my mind is, is does that mean this, this configuration just doesn't work at all and you shouldn't touch it with a barge pole? Or it does work, but the performance is so sucky you'd never want to use it. Or actually, it does work. It, the performance is actually perfectly fine. It's just the software vendor never had time to QA that particular configuration and it missed the QA cycles. And maybe in six months or 12 months or 18 months, it will be supported. Or they did have the resources, but they didn't feel there was enough customer demand to waste QA resources approving a supported configuration of which there'd been very little interest. But all the software vendor does is says, this is unsupported. And then I had to find out as an instructor by configuring something that was unsupported, what it was like, because I'm curious to to know. I mean, I'm mm. nothing nothing bleeding edge or uh, wowie like Duncan and the other guys were doing, just like sort of basic stuff, um, you know, like you know what's a supported configuration and, and what's what's not. And I wish our industry would actually have different layers of unsupportedness. <laughs> so I mean, I guess VMware used to do that. We used to talk an awful lot about experimentally supported. Yeah, but that that terminology seems to have, in the time that I was, was still independent, it's something that's, that's not mentioned anymore. Um, mm. I, I don't know. Maybe it irked people. People didn't like the term. I, I don't it's know. A, it's a new term, Mike, and it's tech preview. Yeah, you see in uh, VAI for NFS with view. So it's no longer experimental or, or not supported. It's it's now tech preview, which is use at your own risk. You've already been if you're the customer for it and it, uh, and you've been using the the unsupported tools. Now it's moved to the next step. Mm. But I think unsupported means all of the things you described. And and you're right. Well, there needs to be somewhere that says this is the form of unsupported where the world will blow up if you do it mm. versus. This is the sort of unsupported where if you log a support call, we're going to make, ask you to make the change. I guess the other thing is is that, I mean, there's a reason why unsupported exists, and that's to blackball anybody dialing up and asking for support on a configuration. You can turn around and go, that's an unsupported configuration, you're on your own. Yeah, And it's to do with terms and conditions about what you agree for your, for your support. But the problem I've sometimes had with it when I was an independent is I knew farewell that a certain configuration would work, did work, yeah. was uh, excellent performance, but the customer could not use it because it was not supportive. Even though we all knew it was, it was this would be fantastic, and therefore it then the right. <laughs> it then becomes not about the technology, but, but about the QA cycles and whether it will ever become supported, will it ever be regarded within, and I'm not just talking VMware here, I'm taking any ISV, mm. will it ever be a feature which the the customers and the supplier of the software see as important enough to actually take that label off, you know. But um, yeah. the, uh, thanks for sharing with the, the thing about the brown bags. I think what I would say about them as well, I don't know whether that came across is, there's a video element to these with presentations. Oh, yes. It, it, it's, it's like yes. training uh, for free, free training people. And, uh, and, uh, anybody listening? Yes, free training on brown bags. <laughs> free yeah. training we give away. <laughs> you go to professionalvmware.com slash brown bags. Uh, there are 
hours and hours and hours of free training content that is produced by people who are using the products all the time. Um, some of this, the material that, that I did. So last year I started my involvement doing the, the entire blueprint of the VCAP 5 data center design exam, the DCD exam. And over 13 weeks, I had six different presenters come in and present an hour each week for 13 weeks covering the entire blueprint. Hmm. The whole lot's absolutely free for download. We have on our YouTube channel, we have a playlist for the VCAP DCD, VCAP DCA, and VCP5. Uh, currently in progress is the uh, VCAP for cloud infrastructure design. Is I believe that along with desktop is, is currently in progress uh, across both the US and the European, the EMEA um, podcasts. And yeah, if, every week another couple of hours worth of great content turns up. Not long ago, we actually had a VCDX bootcamp. We had John John Arashid, VCDX number number one. Um, the entire yeah, yeah, the man um, did the entire um, VCDX boot camp that they, they tra he travels around the world delivering. He did it live through the, the podcast. And uh, interestingly, those are some of the longest sessions because I don't think anybody wanted to stop him from delivering the content. <laughs> uh, so they ended up, instead of being the usual sort of hour to hour and a bit, they were hour and a half long. Hour no, who does that sound like? A man after my own heart. <laughs> I thought it was funny when he was... John was ever a trainer. <laughs> I, I, uh, I think uh, when you run about some of the people on the, v on the brown bags at VMware, got longer slot times so I was like yeah I bet I was one of those because if you give Mike Laverick half an hour he uses an hour if you give him an hour he uses he doesn't know how to shut up though that might not. What, what I need to do is carry a big long pole because because the, then there was an hour gap for lunch and mm. if we gave you half an hour before that there was enough <laughs> space for you to run out of steam and get hungry what I'm going to do is carry a big long pole with a hook on it so like people would just like stick it around my neck and then drag me off the stage because they used to have that in the old music hall if they had an act who was overrunning or no good, a big hook would come out and they would just be dragged off the stage, you know. When I had Edward Halitke on, um, the, the running joke with Edward is he also will, will keep talking about stuff. I actually said to him, I'm, when time is up, I'm going to come on stage and pull you off. Hope you're okay with that. Because Ed, Edward is actually a, a really nice guy and he was perfectly fine with being pulled off. Um, I just couldn't get the shepherd's crook. It wouldn't get through uh, airport get through security. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. But it, uh, this discussion about the brown bags, I think, leads us very nicely. Watch the, watch the segue here. Any future podcasting person, you know, watch this smooth segue from talking about brown bags to the future of training in our industry because, you know, this training is being offered for free. Uh, we're in a bit of a painful economic cycle right now, which is pretty much global, uh, although, you know, there are some regions who weren't as badly affected, and I think that's true of the kind of Asia-Pac region, you know, over here in Europe and in the US, but it, it's it's like a contagion, the economic cycle. Um, it, we're so globalised now, if Europe is on its uppers and so is America, it's not like anybody else can go, well, we're not affected, because we're all in the, the same... Uh, but together, and you know, normally when there's a downturn in an economic cycle, the first thing that gets cut is staff development and staff training, as as we mm. both know. So, is you know, is uh, instructor-led training, you know, guys in a room with a projector and an instructor, is 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 that a dying uh, model like print media is for books, or is it is it always going to be there in some sort of form? Where are we going with with our own personal development in terms of careers and learning this stuff? 
Well, I'm somewhat biased, as you know, Mike. My primary income comes from standing in a, in a training room at the front and, and uh, talking until people are bored with the product. Um, so I, I certainly see that as, as being the most effective way to, um, to deliver a particular piece of training material. And I think that's the, I, I don't think that in itself is going to go away, but I don't think it's going to be the dominant way that a uh, staff member of a, an organization is going to consume their, their training. One of the nice things that's, that's going on is more of a move towards uh, virtual presence in that room. So definitely one of the issues we have in, in this region is we're, we're not very dense with people. And so we can't always get enough people in one city to take one course for it to go ahead. Um, what, one of the things that VM was working on at the moment is a, a thing that they're calling, actually I can't remember what they're calling it now, where you do a video conference, but there is in the room with the instructor and the training room with the instructor is half the course. And then the rest of the, the students are actually attending through, uh, through a web client and they're getting a live instructor delivery which they can ask questions of and where their face actually appears on a video wall at the back of the room so the instructor can see whether they're falling asleep. Um, and it's, it's sort of it's, it's a, a step between the sort of WebEx delivered live online that we've historically done where no, nobody who has ever done a, an online course with me as the trainer, and I've done quite a lot of them, none of them have ever seen my face in in the course, all they've seen is the slides, and it's really hard to get the interaction with the student when all you can see is the slides, and particularly some of the time you have to mute the whole phone call so you can't even hear them, and that really sacrifices the quality of education of the student. The student's got to be very dedicated. Um, on the other hand, it's still a lot better than not getting a training course. Mm. Uh, the very worst thing is, is actually getting a training course delivered in a way it wasn't designed to, so I do a lot of trainer readiness, and because I don't like getting up at 2 o'clock in the morning, I do them through recorded sessions rather than live sessions, and that's that's the very hardest way to uh, to receive the training. Mm. I think we're going to see a lot of different ways for training delivery. You know, we're seeing uh, organisations like TrainSignal being very successful with their consume it when you want pre-recorded content, uh, but it is very valuable to have a, an actual live human being with some real experience that you can discuss and, and ask questions of, and that's that's where the, all of the recorded media fall down. You need somebody with some spent some hands-on time, which is why you and I are both very much about labs. Mm. Um, that hands-on time really enriches the learning experience and also the interaction between groups of students, which, of course, if you're just watching it recorded by yourself, there's nobody else who's going to ask the question that you hadn't realised you should have asked. Yeah, I mean... There's a classroom full of students. That's great. I remember... To give people an example of how it's different, one of the things I've often seen students do on training courses is if, if this is a UK thing, I don't know whether it's elsewhere, my, my fellow countrymen. It's often the, hard, the hardest people to teach are your own countrymen. Teaching other people who are not from your country is often easier because, you know, just the kind of the way we, we are. But uh, the number of times I've seen students sat in a room go, <sighs> and that just tells me that they're not, that the, the, the sound of the breath, the sigh, uh, indicates that they're not happy in some way. Um, either the lab isn't working for them or the module that I've just been delivered they aren't happy with. And I, rather than just letting that ride, I used to say, is there a problem? <laughs> Normally when one has a problem, you go, I've got a problem. Don't just sit there and go, <sighs> you know, in that kind of frustrated way because passive aggressive I, yeah yeah which you know the british are a kind of legend for their passive aggressiveness because we we can't deal with conflict so we just sigh and raise our eyebrows instead but i would often come back at that and then 
when you do, you, you find out that <clears throat> the problem that you have is actually very easy to fix. So, yeah, if you do that mm. and do this, um, and, or uh, it'll be a mistake that I've made. Oh, yeah, I forgot to say. Don't do this, yeah, miss well, this bit, you know. Well, uh, I just need to explain this in, from a different angle because it just doesn't make sense to you. Mm. And that's, that's one of the things I see is, is when the, the student is just saying, I just don't get it. Mm. Uh, I'm sitting here with six other people, they get it, and I don't. Um, and you've got to explain it a different way. And you, it's just so hard to do that if you can't see faces and, and hear the, the size. Although in, in New Zealand, they, they'll call you out and say, that just doesn't make sense. <laughs> the uh, other thing is, is that... It's a new world behavior. I mean, the, the funny thing I found as an instructor was, for years I was teaching courses, but I actually didn't attend many, because a lot of the times I would teach it myself or I'd attend a, a trainer-trainer session. But the mm. trainer-trainers are actually more about how to do the delivery than about the product, as you, as you probably okay. know. Yep. But um, I, um, I, I think I went on my first training course in more than two years, just a couple of weeks ago. I went on the design course uh, delivered by Eric Sleuth, which you know I think a lot of people would well, give their oh a lot of people would give their right arm just to be in the same room as him. Never mind on the same training course. But what made that course really work wasn't the powerpoints. Uh, it wasn't really Eric either, although Eric did an excellent job. It was the interaction amongst the students. What Where Eric came in was being able to steer that and keep the discussions mm. focused, which is a skill in its own right, which is not killing off any discussion, but at the same time realising there's a clock on the wall, there's a certain amount of content we have to get through, and if people are just yep. bitching about, oh, I bloody hate Flash or I hate bloody hate Java, then you're not really doing anything, you're just venting. Mm. Sometimes classroom discussions turn into a big like let's just get our, a load of grief off our chests rather than really having a, a genuine discussion about something that's going to have some benefit in your See, life that, that, that discussion needs to happen afterwards with a beer <laughs> yeah that's what that's what vbs is about but uh, that that design workshop is is my favorite or all of the design workshops are my favorite type of course to, to, to deliver or workshop to deliver because as you say they're all about an interaction between the group of students you get a group of uh, typically guys together in the room mm. who do this stuff and care about it enough that they're actually going to really engage in a discussion and I, I have a fabulous time with a bunch of guys that I get on the, on the design courses every time I really look forward to those those workshops sure so you said um, live online is something that's growing in in your region I'm doing my first live online courses in the next couple of weeks if I get approval. I think the way it works as a VMware employee is I register for a live online course, but I, I don't get it uh, confirmed because there are customers, paying customers, who could fill those slots. So I only get my sure. slot if there is a slot free, so I still don't know whether that would happen. But the main reason I picked them was one of them is vCloud Director, which I've done the design for, but I've not done the ICM. And I wanted to do the ICM, but I've been spending six months with the, with the product. So I figured, do I want to spend three days away from home and away from Carmel on something that I'm going to know 90% of or 80% of, but there's going to be every 10 minutes. Uh, oh, I didn't know that. How did I miss that? Oh, scroll it down, you know, the <laughs> filling in the blanks. And it's going to be every 10 mm, minutes mm. the blank is going to be filled. Because you don't want to learn a course in your own time or learn on the job, which is, let's face it, a lot. You you don't really learn it. And the number of times people I had coming through my classroom, oh, yeah, I've been using VMware for two or three years. And within 30 minutes, I told them 20 things that they didn't know anything about. Yeah. Uh, so, you know. Features that hadn't been relevant to them previously, suddenly they realize they can use because 
you, you only know what you know. Sure. Uh, and that's that's part of why you, you go on these these training courses is to make sure there is a consistent level of knowledge that you're exposed to all of the parts. So this the, the live online is growing where you where you are, but are there any barriers to the adoption and, and it to it growing that you see? Could it be made bigger? Or, um, I, I don't know how big it is in Europe. I've been out of the training game for about mm. two or three years, so I've not kept in. I don't know whether ninety percent of the training is now delivered online or whether it's just ten percent or five percent. So it tends to be the majority. Uh, the majority is delivered in classroom with a with a live instructor, mm. uh, the, as opposed to a dead instructor. Well, yeah, you know, cardboard cutouts of instructors don't work so well. They found they're much cheaper, but they don't deliver the same learning outcomes. Um, the, the live online stuff is is still a minority. It's um, you know I, I think there is still a bit of it being delivered, but it's, it's still a small amount. Around my region, it tends to be used for the courses that otherwise would never run. So. For instance, site recovery manager. Uh, it's it's difficult to get six students in one town in one week to mm. attend that course, and so most of the time when I'm teaching site recovery manager, it's live online. Whereas install, configure, manage courses and VDI courses definitely in person, and all of the design stuff has to be in person because I think you need all of that interaction. Mm. Uh, but I, the the name of that other delivery where it was partly online and partly in, in rooms, they're calling it VFlex. And I think it's, it is going to be a, a significant thing because it's going to allow us to run the training centre in one city and then have people who can't make it to that city attend the course and get a much closer to a live experience than they do during the normal live online because there is some of that interaction and questions going on with the students in the room. So, so like have a hotel or a second life, but for for training. Hey, there was an idea I floated past John Troyer about two years ago, which was why don't we have a real virtual conference in Second Life for VMworld for people who can't get to VMworld? You know, we're about virtualization, but we don't have a virtual conference. And I think back then the VMworld portal was, you know, you'd walk into it and it was like circa 1997 kind of cartoon characters that you'd move around the solutions exchange and I'm like I think I probably went in for about five minutes and then I left the solutions exchange you know and the, the training materials you go into a well uh, presentations you go in and what it was was a recording of a VMworld session that had just been put in a window but it's essentially what was captured through Camtasia or what, however they do it at the event but I was saying, you know, why not have a real live event? You know, that's in Second Life. Presentation and but John was yeah. saying, John's been around the game of social media much longer than I have. And he was saying, yeah, this has been looked at like 10 years ago or five years ago, virtual conferences. And um, they don't work in the way that people imagine to in their big vision style picture of things. Yeah. Um, and... The, the point of, of the being a physical conference is to bring people together. So kind of weirdly, as a virtualization company, we like the physicalization of people being together and, you know, that interaction, like we were saying a moment ago, make, yeah. it, make it a virtual conference, then it becomes this kind of... There's a certain disconnectedness, I think, that comes from being mm. live online or, you know, we all do WebExes and uh, con calls with people who are in different regions, and it's never the same as being in the same damn room as them. I must admit, before we go on to our last question, I was going to say was, um, uh, I've been with the company for about five or six weeks, and then I went to Palo Alto the week before VMworld to meet my team for the first time, although that team interviewed me. It was now meeting them as a colleague rather than as a candidate. 
And it was so nice to actually be on the weekly meeting in the room where you could see people's facial gestures. You could see that they were making a joke and they weren't serious when they said that. All that kind of human fluffy stuff which just gets mm. lost when you have a disembodied voice. But, you know, anyway. Anyway, last question. I think, uh, I don't know how long we've been running for, but we must be coming close to an hour and I know you have a family and uh, I don't want to keep you away from them, but... Uh, we could treat this very sim uh, quickly. Um, I had a misconception recently, which I thought I had to do a training course in order to get the vCloud on VCP or VCP Cloud or VCP IIS or whatever it was. And offline, I was I was corrected that this wasn't the case. I don't know where I got that in my head. I must have read something too quickly. But it's still the case when it comes to certification. You you only really need to do one training course to get your foot in the door with VMware. Is that right? Yeah, so fundamentally, the, I mean, historically it was you had to attend a training course to get VCP certified and then everything else, there were optional training courses, but you didn't have to. Uh, and that's still the case. So I think the place where your confusion came in is that there are two ways to get the VCP cloud certification. One is to come as, a, as an existing VCP5 in data center virtualization and then do the infrastructure as a service exam to get VCP cloud. The other is to come in completely blank, and then you have to do, with, with no VCP certs, then you have to do the vCloud director install, configure, manage, um, and then I think there's an online course as well, and then you do the VCP cloud exam, not the IA, IAAS exam, Right. Okay. both of which lead you to becoming a VCP cloud, but one requires course attendance while the others doesn't. Right, so there's um, two different tracks and, and, and to, to, to avoid having to do the course you need to be a VCP and have one of the advanced certifications, is that right? So there's, there's another complicating factor that comes along, so there's that VCP, Certified Professional Foundation Level Certification and above it the advanced certs. What VMware have said at, at Partner Exchange uh, week before last was that if you achieve any of the VCP level certifications, you can do the VCAT, the advanced certification in one of the other products and you automatically get the VCP level certification. So for instance, if you were, I don't know if you're current on your VCP data center? Yes, no actually I'm just VCP 2, 3, 4 and 5, I have none of the advanced ones. I right. think, think that but, but no. the VCP5 qualifies you. The fact that you've done VCP5 DV, mm. the, the, the vSphere one, means that if you went today and sat to the, uh, the VCAP 5 cloud infrastructure design exam, which is actually shipped, you would get your VCP cloud as well as the VCAP CID. Right. I tell you, the other thing that kind of threw me was the use of this term data center virtualization, because in the past, mm. we would just say VCP. And I was reading it, and it says, you, you need a VCP 5 data center virtualization. I'm sat there thinking, oh, so I have to do some other exam. And I didn't realize, actually, I've got it already. <laughs> we've just, we've moved the goalpost by changing the damn name, and it kind of threw me a little bit. If you're, I mean, if you're an old school person like me, you sort of remember the old terms, and you don't keep up to date with all the labeling changes, you just say, I'm a VCP5. So when it said DV, I thought, is that one of the advanced certifications that, that uh, I haven't done yet? So I must admit, I, I looked at doing the DCAPs, um, uh, the advanced ones a while ago and I thought it was one of those times where I knew that if I did them by the time I complete them there'd be a new version of the product out and I'd have to do them all over again so I thought I'm just uh, it's, yeah I, I advise you to, to if you think you're going to do them to do them 
on whatever you're studying now because as soon as the new version comes out, you've got to start studying again. There's always a lead time between the new version product coming out and the new VCAPs coming out. And it, it can easily be a year. The, the VCAP 5 certs uh, only came out um, relatively late, well, mid, middle of last year, I guess. So mm. they were 6 to 12 or 6 to 9 months after the, the vSphere 5 release. Mm. So there is quite a time afterwards. Um, and it's actually really good to do the VCAP certification before you do the new VCP because mm. you know, if you're doing your VCAPs on V5 at the moment, the last thing you want to do is pollute your head later this year with the with the V whatever next is, and I guess the number after five is six. Um, yeah, your, your your version six knowledge will get in the way of passing the version five cert. So I usually advise students to if you're going to do VCAPs, uh, do them before you start studying for, for version 6. Don't, don't muddy the water too much by having different flavours blended in together. Yeah. That, yeah, that, that I mean, makes sense. I know it's something that always confuses me. One of the things that I get sometimes is I'm explaining when a feature came into the vSphere product. Because like you, I've been around since, since ESX version 2. Uh, at least that's my first ESX version. Uh, and, and when I'm describing when a particular feature came into the product, I now have this moment of pause where I try and work out which version it came in at. I actually had a, a group of students who, who turned to one another and said, we've broken them because I paused for so long. <laughs> i tell you what's, what I like about that is, you know how we've had different com uh, product names, you know, before it was just the platform, then it was virtual infrastructure, then it was vSphere. What I'm really pleased about is nobody in marketing said, hey, let's go back into the past and relabel all products to have the new name. Like a certain organisation used to uh, does, uh, who are men unmentioned, who I used to be an instructor for them as well. It was like, please don't go doing this Stalinistic thing where you go back into the past to make the past meet with with up with the, the present right. name. Keep the original product names because that helps me in my mind uh, remember where the various milestones were. But I, I know what you mean about uh, the, the, the tricky thing with certification for me is I used to have to do it be an instructor. And I, mm. I guess in my day, VCP was all you needed. As the advanced certs came out and the advanced courses came out, quite rightly, I think it's now the case that you have to have the advanced certs in order to do the advanced training and you know to teach the advanced courses. Yeah. 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 Um, but I, I don't know in my own role how certified I really need to be to do what I do. So if I'm not out there in the field and I'm not delivering really detailed training on every single radio button, everything that does. Do I actually just need VCP style uh, certifications across what we do? I don't have to go up. To, I don't need a VCDX to do what I do, and it would be kind of a bit strange to do what I do and be that heavily certified. So, plus the other thing is, I don't particularly like doing exams. So if I can, uh, in my own mind, rationalise away not having to do any exams <laughs> under the basis of, well, I don't really need it for my role, it, it, it reduces the burden for me. But I'm thinking of doing the VCP on desktop mainly because after writing the book with Barry, the desktop stuff is in my head. And I'm thinking, well, I could probably do the exam with very little prep and still pass that. So, uh, Mike, you should just book it and set it because um, it's... It's quite a good, the VCP5 desktop is a good exam. It does a, a good assessment of your familiarity with the product. And I suspect you could sit it right off after you get off this call um, and you've got enough familiarity with the product to pass yeah, yeah. it. I must, um, admit I've hold, I must admit I've held myself back a little bit with the cloud side of stuff because that was really completely new to me. I think I did one article on 
the Cloud 1.5 when it came out and I never touched it. Everything was SRM and View and vSphere for me. And I know I've been approached by the brown bag guys a couple of times saying, will you present? But typical instructor, I'm like, I don't know whether I'm ready yet. I don't know whether I know this well enough yet. I'm not yet a Zen master in this. And But I guess I shouldn't be so... Um, I don't know what a conservative about it. I should just jump in with both feet because I probably do know more than yeah. I think I know. You know? And, and that will be true both for doing the um, desktop certs and for vBrownBag hosting. Now, uh, some of the guys that we have coming in and hosting vBrownBags are absolutely brilliant. Um, they require no preparation and just turn up and, and show you awesome. Hmm. Um, others are guys who are actively studying and they choose to, to come in and present for vBrownBag because... Uh, as, as you know, Mike, until you've taught something to somebody, you don't actually know it yourself. Mm. Um, they, they use it as a way of motivating themselves to do a particular piece of study. And all of them do it because they want to give something back to the community, that they have uh, received a lot of material from the community and want to give something back. And, and I've got to say publicly, Mike, thanks for all the, the content you produced early on in my career with, with v, uh, VI3, as, as it was, the upgrade guides, were some of the things that got me started and, and were part of the kind of general inspiration for me to carry on and, and keep contributing to the community through my career. Oh, thank you very much for that. Oh, I feel all kind of warm and fuzzy now. Oh, I've been ego struck. Um, what, what I was going to say, probably one final comment, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this and I'll give you an opportunity to respond and then we'll wrap up, which is I used to say as an instructor that the person who really benefits from the training the most is the instructor himself because or herself. Once you've taught a course four or five times, there's nothing like teaching it four or five times to actually ram it into your brain cells such that if you come back to that course six months later, you turn the page and you go, oh yeah, I remember that. But the students see the course just once, and that's it. And I used to say to uh, some of the VMware education guys, why don't we have a system by which, once you've done a training course, and you've maybe passed the exam, one of the benefits of the program would be the ability to rewind and watch your training course again. Because the number of times people attend a course and they get onto a module like resource pools and they're into it and then they go, yeah, you know what, our lab environment, our environment is so simple we just wouldn't have resource pools. We'll just dump everything on the cluster. And then uh, three months later, uh, the manager comes in and goes, well, we're completely changing our environment and we're going to deploy these resource pool things. And the guy goes, oh, that's the bit where I tuned out of. <laughs> so there's always something that six months later or whatever you feel you know what I really need a bit of revision on that or even just before your exam I'd really like to hear Alistair Cook tell me what a resource pool is just one more time because sometimes it's, the, it's not the first or the second or the third it's the fourth hearing where somebody goes oh yes and there's suddenly this moment of enlightenment or an epiphany of or, and you could sometimes see it in the faces of people but oh yeah I, I don't know what you feel about that is, is it the instructor that really benefits from the training not the students um i i definitely think preparing to and delivering the the training course is is the best preparation for the vcp certs at least it certainly used to be when when the entire blueprint of the exam was covered in the course it's, mm. it's a little less so in terms of prep for the, the certs uh, I definitely agree with you about the multiple times through the material before you actually see all of it. I had I had the, the pleasure of, of teaching a training course, an advanced training course one week, where 
some of my students had been on a basic training course with an instructor the previous week, and the, the instructor was was relatively new in the in the business, and so he was a student on the advanced course as well. Mm. And so I'd be talking about something and say, well, you would have heard last week about this and this and this, and that some of the students were going, huh? No? And I'd look at the instructions and say, yeah, I delivered the, the content that was on those slides. And, and the, the thing is that, that when you're as, there as the student, the, the minute you start thinking about something else, you're actually zoning the instructor out, and you're usually missing something. It may not seem like it's important, but he may then go on to something else that is important while you're still... Uh, thinking about your your auctions on eBay or um, you know the the argument that you had with the dog this morning, <laughs> um, uh, th- these kinds of distractions take you out of the room. And that's one of the things I always say at the beginning of my courses: is the more the student's head is inside the room, the more value they get out of the course. And, sure. I mean, I, I absolutely I learn from my students every single week, and it, it's it's a really sad week when I don't get enough questions and enough comments and enough challenges from my students. Um, but yeah, the, the, the whole presence in the room is a really important part for the student. I, I'll, I'll finish this up with a little anecdote, a gag which you might laugh at because you're you know, we're both former instructors. I used to teach, I used to spend a lot of time on the whole DRS clusters, resource pools, admission control, limits, reservations. I used to really love that part of the course. And um, I used to, at the end of it, I would do like a kind of Q&A process to find out whether they'd really understood it. So about 20 questions on, on the whole thing. And I would do it like a, anybody can shout out what the answer is. You know, List the top 12 things you could do to get a virtual machine to power on. And I knew by getting answers from people, yeah, they're getting this. And I would say to people, you know, a lot of people find this uh, resource management in, in VMware quite complicated and quite difficult. Uh, how, how have you found it? And, uh, the, you know, the, most of the guys would say, actually, it was pretty reasonable. It was, it, I thought it was quite easy. And I'd say, well, you, you know why that is? And I'd pause and they'd go, yeah. it's because you've got one of the best instructors operating in mainland Europe right now. And I'd just laugh. <laughs> <laughs> and they would just laugh. They'd go, yeah, yeah, whatever bullshit, you know. Uh, but uh, I kind of was half joking. And I was half serious at the same time. You know, who's the man, you know? But, but it was, it, it, it's... Um, it's a really rewarding uh, thing, and I, I would say to people career-wise, if you ever are looking to do something else uh, in your existence, and you've never been an instructor before, give it a go, even if you don't do it for decades at a time. It's a, it's a very rewarding uh, job, and it's a great insight into people's personalities and the mentality of the way IT is done, and you see a huge variety of people walk through your door from many different backgrounds, in a way, you probably see more variety as an instructor because you never know who's going to walk through your door than if you spend three years in the same business where you're meeting the same people every day and there's a kind of cultural attitude of this is how we do things. What you see is the great variety of, of humanity come through and the great variety of IT infrastructures come through off the back of that. And it's a wonderful way of learning. But uh, anyway, I sometimes wonder I might go back to instructing at some later stage in my career because I loved it so much, but... Right now, I'm sort of working out what I'm doing now before I worry about the, the future. Well, in, instructing is a um, fairly in, intense uh, occupation, and uh, it can take quite a toll on the family as well. So, mm, this well, is true. Good that Kamel is, is still with you and, and prepared to commit to you uh, <laughs> so much to change countries with you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, yes, uh, if you're not careful, if you if you spend too much time away from home, you end up uh, being divorced if you're not careful if you're an instructor. But anyway, hopefully you'll never a come to A lot of instructors I know are on second wives. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, Alistair, it's been an absolute privilege and a joy listening to what you uh, have to say. For people who've been listening in, don't forget the Auto Labs. It's a fantastic resource, wonderful piece of work from, from Alistair here. And don't forget the brown bags because that's a wonderful resource for learning more. You may not only use it, you may still go on a training course with VMware or with a VMware partner, but hey, it's a free supplement. And you know any additional content that you can use to add knowledge is something you should be using. So please check those things out. And Alistair, thank you very much for being on the, on the show. It's been my pleasure, Mike. It's always great to have a chat with you. See you next week.